It's Lord God, uh, just speak to us now. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this beautiful church, uh, this community that you formed here. And as we journey through Acts, may you inspire us and equip us and fill us with joy as we serve you. And we ask this in your wonderful name, Lord. Amen. So, uh, Acts 2 is an, a wonderful, wonderful passage. And I'm hoping those of you who are in small groups and or Bible study groups, and most of our church are, a lot of us are, and if you're not, do, do try and get into one and speak to me afterwards about how you might do that. Speak to Belinda. Uh, in your small groups this week, you're going to be reading through the whole of the chapter of Acts 2, and, uh, and, or you might even have read it this week by yourself in preparation for tonight, uh, for, this, for this morning. And you see, Acts 2 is an incredibly exciting story. And uh, we don't have time to go into it all, but it's, it breaks down very neatly into three sections. And uh, we're going to have a look at those three sections in brief, but then spend most of our time thinking about the last uh, piece of the book. Um, so, uh, the first section in Acts is, talks about a particular event. And, and what, is the, what is the event that is described in the first part of Acts 2? For those of you who have been around church a while who are familiar with it, what happens? Pentecost. Pentecost, which is particularly uh, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, uh, at Pentecost, uh, this is about 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, and... Um, a whole new era in human existence opens up on this day. This is a turning point for all of human history because what happens here is this massive, profound event. The Holy Spirit comes on people and uh, in a roaring wind, tongues that look like fire, and then people speaking all kinds of languages. So you have an event. You have uh, wind, earth, wind, and fire. You have fire, and you have uh, languages. Okay. And you go, what does that mean? Well, God's people in the Hebrew Scriptures had been longing, longing for a time when Yahweh, the great God of Israel, would, would actually become massively personally, universally present to everybody in the community. Because up until this point, uh, the Holy Spirit or God's personal presence had come to rest upon people for a particular task. But most of the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament was of God as being a distant being who only a very handful of people could approach and only a handful of people could really directly experience. And they were looking forward to the day when this would change, when God would show up and change them from the inside. So God would no longer be an external force, but an internal present reality. And Pentecost, the event is wind. So what does wind signify in the Old Testament? The, the Hebrew narratives, the wind is the ruach, the breath of God. It signifies power. So God breathes his power afresh at Pentecost. And it's a creational power, because how does God create the world? 
by speaking. His ruach, his breath hovers over reality and then he speaks. And from chaos comes order. From nothing comes something. From death comes life. And that's what happens here. The breath comes, the ruach. God in power. Then tongues of fire. Things that look like fire. And When we looked at this in our small group on a Thursday night, I made the joke that as we come and read this passage, it's okay, we're Anglicans, I've got the fire blanket ready. In case the Holy Spirit turns up, we can put it over your head and quickly put out the fire, it'll be fine. Yeah, I thought that was quite funny, but a couple of you laughed, thank you, yeah. Uh, it's tongues like, what, is, what does fire represent in Scripture and also in our life? What's fire incredibly useful for? Fire is what you use to purify things. You, you, you burn out the dross to get the fine gold and silver and precious metals, right? In Isaiah 6, there's a story of the prophet, one of God's people, and he's in the temple and he's worshiping, and he, and he has a vision of God, and he goes, oh, woe is me. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He's so acutely aware of his impurity, and what is God's answer to his impurity? Well, one of the angels brings him a burning coal to put on his mouth to purify him. So Pentecost is about God showing up in power. That's awesome but also showing up to purify us, to, to burn away the dross, to heal us and restore us, to get rid of all the junk, <laughs> refine us. Isn't that amazing? Well, hands up if you think it's a pleasant experience being refined and purified. <laughs> Not so much, hey? But we need it, don't we? Don't you? Oh my goodness, we need it. You know, the Holy Spirit comes to purify us in a way that no detox diet ever can. No colonic irrigation will ever accomplish. No, you know, 40-day fitness challenge will ever bring about in your life. No marriage therapy. No self-flagellation. No, you know, just now the Holy Spirit's going to come purify us. It's amazing. Right? That's what we need. We're desperate for it. But not just power and purity, uh, also languages. And this is really interesting. Um, in the story, the Holy Spirit comes upon people. And I mean, I do like this bit of the story um, because they uh, start speaking in, uh, in Jerusalem. They're God-fearing Jews from every nation. They came together in bewilderment because they each one heard their own language being spoken. So here we are. The disciples began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. These are languages from around the Roman Empire. And they said, these are just Galileans. They're poor peasants. How can each of us hear them in our native languages? And then, the, then Luke it records all these languages. Give us an idea. It's all around the, the empire of Rome. They're here including the Cretans. It's good to have Cretans in church, or Cretans. Amazed and perplexed, they asked, what does this mean? It's a good question, right? Why? Why, why, would this, why would the Holy Spirit make people speak in languages that people from all around the empire could hear? What's going on there? <laughs> Some of them made fun of them and thought they're just drunk. So it's, it's not obvious, right? If you go, this is not an obvious sign. 
What's going on with the languages? Well, the power and the purity is healing humanity. That's what's going on, right? The Holy Spirit is given to heal humanity. What do I mean by that? Well, think back. You, you may know this story, you may not, but right back in the primeval, sort of primordial story that we're told in Genesis 1 to 11, uh, what does God do in Genesis 11? Tower of Babel. There's a story of human beings all speaking the same language, getting together to say, we are going to reach God. We're going to be our own gods. We're going to make our name great. And God looks down and goes, oh, where are they? Oh, there they are. And he, he, he gives them all different languages. Why? Not because he's mean, but because he's good. And he gives them different languages to speak to, to limit the amount of evil they can do. Because here's what happens. When human beings get together, we both have the capacity to multiply our potential for good. But also, isn't it true that when human beings get together, we multiply exponentially our capacity to do evil? So God's, God breaks us up. And Acts 2, the giving of the Holy Spirit, is an undoing of Genesis 11, a healing of the divisions and the fissures and the brokenness amongst humankind. And oh my God, don't we need that? Don't we need that? We needed it then and we need it now. We are, you know, we, we need God to bring people together. We're, we're, we're lonely. I mean, you know, even with all our Google Translate and our social media and our ability to connect, uh, you speak to most sociologists and folk who study cultures like ours in the late capitalism, hyper-connected, industrialized world, and we live in an epidemic of loneliness and fragmentation. We can't make our relationships work. We're just, you know, as, as hard as we can, we're, we're torn apart. We, we can't get along with each other. It's, it's painful. Between nations say, you would have thought, wouldn't you, after however many thousand years, we would have figured out that sending our young men in to kill each other on battlefields is just a really dumb way of solving problems, wouldn't you? But we can't stop ourselves. We would have thought you would have figured out, blokes, that, you know, beating your wife to death is not a great way to express love and make marriage work. But, but we can't. Like, we can't solve that. We have this, this problem of, of intimate partner violence and domestic violence that is a scourge. And, and like every week you read it and you go, oh my God, how is this possible that our relationships are so broken? Oh, why is that? Well, it's, it's the outworking of the ripping apart of the fabric of our community that goes back to Genesis 11. And what the story of Acts 2 says is that God is bringing us into the age where he alone can heal all of that. See, Pentecost is the dawning of the age of the Spirit, where now the Holy Spirit is available to enable people to connect and to communicate 
in a way that will bring love and joy and hope and life in a way that has never been possible before across ethnic boundaries, across uh, socioeconomic boundaries, across gender boundaries. That's the amazing thing that, that Pentecost opens up. Now the, the, the gates to the kingdom of God are thrown open to women and men and young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, <laughs> Muslim and Jew, secular Australian, straight and gay. Everyone's welcome. And when you come in, the Holy Spirit is going to bind us together and weave us into a community where, where those divisions and that pain is healed and, broke and, and restored. That's what happens at Pentecost. It's awesome, hey? Now, of course, not everyone gets it. We saw that, right? And we, um, a bunch of them think, you know, uh, what does it mean? And then a bunch of them go, well, actually, they've had too much wine. So the second part of the story uh, is we've had the event, but the event requires explanation. <laughs> so Peter stands up and says, uh, listen, these people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning because, listen, uh, on holy days in Jerusalem, the pubs only open at 10. So he's saying, nah. No, they're not drunk. Something else going on. There's something else going on. And the explanation is profound. And he tells the whole story of Israel, and I'll leave it to you to read. And he says, how is this event going to happen? How is humanity going to be healed? Well, uh, it's going to be healed through the life and death and resurrection and ascension and pouring out of the Spirit of Jesus, Messiah and Lord. That's how this thing is going to happen. And you say, well, duh, yeah, we're in church. Of course, you're going to tell me it's Jesus. But let me explain why this is so significant. You see, in every human culture and in every human heart, there is a longing for our humanity and our brokenness to be healed, right? We all know the world's messed up. So over time, we all develop different answers to this, okay? So the one answer to uh, how are we going to fix humanity, how are we going to heal the world? Well, one answer is religion, right? So imagine here's religion, right? And religion says, if I can find an external code, if I can find God, and if I can just make everybody really, really religious, then we'll all get along, we'll get away with sin, we'll have power to live, we'll have purity, and the world will be great. So you double down on religion. And whenever there's any, any problem with the world, you just say the problem is a lack of religion, so we need more religion. And more religion, right? Is, do you recognize that? Now, now, where do you end up with well, you know, the, where do you end up with that? Well, one vision, right, is an Islamic vision of a global caliphate, where if the entire world was, was under the rule of the caliphs, if the entire world was under a theocratic rule, where we were all super-religious observants of Sharia law, and we doubled down on this religion, then we'd all get along. And let me tell you, uh, at its heart, the theological driver for Islam is actually to try and fix the problems of the world. It really is. 
Muslim people are not evil people who want to destroy the world. Even the most radical Muslim who's embraced jihad as a path to this doubling down on religion is doing it because they believe this is how we can solve the problems of the world by bringing everyone into full submission under Allah in the way of the Prophet. So you get religious, more and more religious. Now, that's in all of our hearts, right? We've, the, the Roman Catholic Church have tried it. Uh, radical Hindus in India are trying it right now. Um, legalists of all stripes try it. Does it work? Not really. In fact, the more you double down on religion, it sort of works, it holds out a lot, but then you just end up fighting with people who disagree with you, don't you? So the thing that's meant to solve the problems of the world actually pours fuel onto the problems and exacerbates them, and you just end up killing each other over different stuff. So then what happens is we embrace another strategy, don't we? What's the other strategy? No religion. Famous quote from the French Revolution, you know, we'll only be free when the last nobleman is strangled with the guts of the last bishop irreligion. Remove religion because all religion causes war and suffering and division and pain. So the answer to the problems of the world is actually to remove religion and allow us the innate goodness of human beings to flourish away from the oppressive, destructive effects of religion. Now, this is the space of of our friends and neighbors, mostly here in Balmain and Roselle in secular Australia. And maybe you, there's something in you that resonates strongly with that solution. There's something in me that resonates strongly with it as well. Like I, the idea that you might kill someone because they disagree with your religion is abhorrent. So you go, maybe the answer is get rid of religion. And I, I hear this when I talk to people who, aren't, uh, who are secular and I talk to them about faith. This is one of the most common criticisms I get. Well, religion just divides and oppresses and is the source of all problems in the world, so let's just get rid of it. Now, has that worked? No, not so well. Look at the last 150 or 200 years, and you see our grand experiment of eradicating religion. Has it really brought in the utopias that we dreamed of? What happened in France? Well, the secular revolutionaries became oppressive tyrants. What happened under Stalin? What happened in Nazi Germany, a radically secular, dressed up in religion ideology? What happened in Pol Pot's Cambodia? Well, it's, it doesn't work. And, and, and look, more, look more closer to home. Has our embrace of an irreligious, individualistic, capitalist, consumerist society really produced the utopia we longed for? We live in an epidemic of loneliness. We live with skyrocketing levels of anxiety, depression, mental illness, anomie, purposelessness. We, we can't address the scourge of domestic violence. We oppress the weak and the vulnerable. Our rich, religion-free men live stream the sexual abuse of infants and little kids from places like the Philippines, free of God, free to oppress and destroy and tear apart. How's it going for us? Well, irreligion doesn't work. Religion doesn't work. Acts 2 says there's a third way, and the third way is the kingdom of God. 
This new reality will only come into being, this is the whole point of Peter's explanation, through the work of Jesus as Messiah, God himself healing the world by absorbing into himself all the brokenness and division and pain of the world, healing it and restoring it and triumphing over it through his suffering and death, and then pouring himself out to change hearts and birth a whole new humanity. That's the answer. At once a tight community centered on Jesus, but a radically open community. And it's worked all around the world. There are people just like us, gathering from every nation, every tongue, looking different, sounding different, coming to know Jesus, having their lives changed, becoming women and men of peace. Relationships are healed. Slaves are set free. Wars are ended because King Jesus comes in. So it's all about Jesus. And this Jesus that we hear in Acts 2 has a, creates a new humanity. So when you and I come to faith, it's not just a private, personal thing, though it is that but we're actually called to a whole new vision of human life. And then we're called to live that out redemptively to change the world, right? Which goes thirdly and finally to the effect of this event. And the effect is threefold. It brings about a community that has a new devotion, new behavior, and new believers. So this new community has a new devotion, right? Look at it. It's, it's just great. I mean, you know, uh, verse 42, they, the Holy Spirit comes upon themselves, and what do they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What does that mean? Well, uh, let's think about it. What is the apostles' teaching? Is that my teaching? I've been thinking with the idea of rebranding myself, Apostle Mark. I think it's got a nice sort of ring, don't you think? Then you can all be devoted to my teaching. Do you think that's what's on view? Yes, I see some heads nodding. Thank you, yes. And right after this, if you all just put your hands on your heads and say after me, we are not a cult. No, it's not my, I'm not an apostle in that sense. So what's the apostles teaching today? Let's pretend that's not a rhetorical question. Well, it's the scriptures, right? Where do we find the apostles teaching? In the Bible, in scripture. So we're devoted to Scripture, which means that, that, you know what, when we look at the world and we say, what is going to guide us in life? Where are we going to find God speaking to us most clearly? What, are, what is going to serve to shape how we do life together? Well, it's the apostles' teaching collected for us, canonized for us, and communicated to us in the, in the Bible. That's it. Devote yourself to that. Like, let that shape how you live. 
moment by moment, day by day. Let that shape what you do with your business. Let the Scriptures shape how you do your marriage. Let the Scriptures shape how you do your parenting. Let the Scriptures shape what you do with your sex life, with your superannuation, with your investments, with uh, your leisure time. It's how God speaks to us, right? So, so these people were devoted to this. Uh, but then they're also devoted to fellowship breaking the bread and prayer. Now, that struck me as interesting, because here's the thing I've noticed. You may have noticed this as well. Um, there are a lot of really weird, dysfunctional, annoying people who know the Bible really, really, really well, aren't there? <laughs> and, and, you know, and the worst case scenario is they end up kind of wacky interpretations, crazy conspiracy theories, What's going on there? Well, being devoted to the Scripture by yourself is not enough. It's a good start. But listen, what God wants to do in this new community is to take us on a journey of being devoted to Scripture, but then devoted to fellowship. Why? Because we're a new community. We're a new humanity. You can't be a solo Christian. Let me put it this, the other way of putting it is uh, the local church, a community like this, is a crucible for the formation of Christ-likeness in our souls. A new, a local church is a crucible for the formation of the new humanity, right? Yeah, okay, let's unpack that. What's a crucible? Yeah, you take a little thing like this, and you put all your different elements in it, and you take a great big thing and you bang them together and you... Okay. Now, I, I got this image. There's a great marriage and family therapist. If you're looking for a book to read to help you with your marriage, search for a guy called David Snarch. Really interesting guy. Uh, it, I'll, I'll, put his, I'll write his name up here just so you can see that. David Snarch. His magnum opus, a great big technical book on marriage and family therapy, is called The Sexual Crucible. And he talks about how marriage, the problems in marriage are the very things. That's the crucible to form our, our lives and our hearts. And I, I've thought about this for 20 years, and I thought, you know what? The local church is the crucible of Christ-likeness. Because here's my experience of pastoring local churches for 25 years and being in a church for 35 years. It's a place that is wonderful and extraordinary and exquisite and full of joy, and it's a place full of annoying, difficult, disappointing, painful people. Isn't it? It's a painful mess. It's hard. There's conflict. I mean, you read on from Acts 2. It doesn't take them long. Acts 5, give them three chapters, and, in, and church discipline comes in, and they're striking people dead in the local church, which I'm looking forward to preaching on when we come to that in church discipline, I think, taking it to a whole new level, the, the, the crucible of death. But isn't, has, isn't that your experience, right? So, so actually, local churches, they can be difficult places because we're, we're flawed and we're all on a journey. The crucible model of the local church says when we are devoted to Scripture and devoted to fellowship, when we hang in there with each other and we lean into the conflict and the difficulty and the pain, that's when Jesus Christ is banging us together into each other and on 
you know, so that at the end of it, we become more and more like Jesus. I mean, how, what was Jesus' path to glory? It was the crucible of the cross. On the cross, God is pounding out evil and sin so that the other side might be resurrection and purity and glory and life. In the local church, that is his plan, right? Now, if you don't... I, if you don't want to, no, that's not, sorry, I just want, that's not an excuse for us to treat each other badly. <laughs> like, well, I just want to make your life miserable so that you can be more like Christ. No, no, that's called sin and stupidity. But the inevitability of the brokenness of people coming together on this outrageous task of living redemptively in the kingdom of God to save the world, that will inevitably bring conflict and pain and brokenness. And when you hang in there and you work it out and together you cling on to Jesus and you pray and he humbles you and he softens you and he humbles you and he softens you and like iron sharpens iron, we become more like Jesus. That's when the glory is birthed in the local church. Right? Now what I see in churches and I see it in my own heart is I want to jump out of the crucible because it's hard. And our consumer culture tells us if the church stops meeting your needs, jump out. Find what place, yeah, as soon as there's too much conflict. Now, some of you have been in this church for many years. And I want to say to you, I want to honor you. Because it's a wonderful thing to have raised your kids in this church and stuck at it. And it hasn't, any, I, I'm looking around at some of you have been here like 20 years, 25 years. It hasn't always been easy, has it? They've been hard seasons. People who annoy you and are difficult, and maybe that's even me. But you know what? You've stuck at it, and I promise you, you stick in the crucible, you work with Jesus, you devote yourself to the fellowship. On the other side of that is glory. So I want to honor you and thank you. And for those of us, and those of you who are joining this community, I want to say let's hang in there, right? Let's, let's lean into the crucible. Let's follow God into the fire and come out the other side more like Jesus. Be devoted to fellowship. And this behavior, like what I find interesting is um, there's a, out of this devotion comes a level of economic interdependence, doesn't it? They had everything in common. You know? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Huh? super practical, right? Now, this is hard. We, we don't do a lot of this here. Let me ask a question. Show of hands. No, don't really. But how many of you have ever had to rely on financial support from this church to, you know, pay the bills for a month and put food on your table? Well, none of us have. I know there have been people in the history of this church where that has been true, but it's extremely uncommon. And that's okay. At one level, it's a really good thing that we're all economically self-sufficient. Uh, and it's great that we can provide. But you know what that means? That means I think sometimes our sense of economic interdependence has to be broader than just our congregation because we're pretty good. That's why we have things like Anglicare and Mission Australia and, and, these, and, and the Catholic Charities and these organizations where the whole global body of Jesus in a city like Sydney says we're going to care for the poor. And there's something about sharing life. Even, even little things, right? Like how many cars do you need? 
So there's a family here who have two cars. They use them during the week. Margot and I only have one car. And so on weekends when we need two cars to run kids in different directions, we normally hire an, uh, a go-get. And they said to us a couple of weeks ago, oh, we've, just, we've got two cars sitting there. We only use one on the weekend. Why don't you use, uh, why don't you just use one on the weekends if ever you need it? So this weekend coming up, yesterday we needed two cars and Margot and I are looking at each other. And I'm like, shall I pick up the phone and phone and say, hey, can I just use, can I take you up on that offer and use your second car? Ah, no, 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 I'll just get it, go get it. It's so much easier. So what happens there? Well, if I'd had to experience that economic independence, I would have had to have a conversation with them. I would have had to make myself vulnerable. I would have had to ask a favor. They would have had to make themselves vulnerable. Then they would have had to give me a key at 7.30 tomorrow morning. They would have had to get up early to give me a key and make the car, you know, like, but at the end of it, we would have been a little closer to each other. But I missed that opportunity because I've got enough money to hire a go-get. Uh, you know, like I just, and that's okay. I don't, I'm good with that. Don't, I don't feel bad about getting a go-get. But you see how little acts of economic interdependence and vulnerability can weave a community together? That's what's on view here. And what happens as a result of all of this, friends? There's a whole bunch of new believers. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Leslie Newbegin, a bit of a hero of mine, an Anglican bishop, he said this, uh, the church is the, uh, illegible even for me, I was trying to write, hermeneutic of the gospel. What does that mean? Hermeneutic is the science of interpretation. And what Newbegin is saying is people in a secular context like ours will not understand who Jesus is, will not understand how good and wonderful God is and how ex exquisite the kingdom of God is until they see it lived out in a local church. How are they going to know what forgiveness is like? Well, they're going to come into our church and they're going to see how we forgive each other. How are they going to know what God's radical inclusion is like? Well, they're going to come into our church, and they're going to see how we include anyone who walks in with open hearts and open minds and open wallets and open homes. How are they going to see what hope looks like in the kingdom of God? Well, they're going to walk in here, and they're going to see how we suffer and how we die. How are they going to know what the joy of God looks like? They're going to come in here, and they're going to see our joy. How are they going to know that the purpose, the destiny that God gives us in the kingdom? They're going to come into our community, and they're going to see us living lives of purpose, fixed on the destiny that we have in Christ. How are they going to know the healing that comes in the kingdom of God. Well, they're going to come into our community and they're going to experience the healing, physical healing, signs and wonders. They're going to experience the emotional healing, the psychological healing, the restoration of all things lived out in our community. And that's how people understand and make sense of who Jesus is through the local church. They hear it said, but it's just a bunch of ideas. They've got to see it lived. And when they see it lived and they taste it, the text says 
It's just amazing. It's so wonderful that people come in all the time. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if that happened here. Imagine if God poured his spirit out on us in such a way that we lived out the kingdom in this crucible in such a way that people understood who Jesus was with such great clarity because of what they experienced here. That's, that's our fundamental vocation and calling, isn't it? <laughs> and, and you know the good news? He's already done that. It's not like we've got to find some secret formula. This happened in Acts 2. It's been happening for 2,000 years. I really do believe at one level all we've got to do is just open ourselves up to it (laughs) and say, come Holy Spirit, put ourselves in the way of God and see what he does. I find that quite an exciting thought. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I thank you for this, uh, this story, this turning point of human existence. I'm going to pray that you will pour your Holy Spirit out upon us and that you will build us and weave us together into this kind of a community, devoted to you and your word, devoted to each other, sharing our lives together, and that as that happens, new people will come into your kingdom daily. Lord, that in, in the months and years ahead, that thousands of people in this city will come to know you because of the way you work in and through this church. I want to thank you for everything that's happened here in this church over the last uh, 170 years. Thank you for the journey of the last 30 years since the mid-90s. Thank you for the journey we've been on these last three and a half years. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that your spirit that you will come upon us so that the season ahead of us is a season of joy and blessing and growth and transformation and healing in Christ and that you do something here that is truly remarkable for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen.